0: Stuart here. This is the iFormRx podcast where we explore the evidence that matters to ambulatory care pharmacy practice. Thanks for joining us. We don't talk very often about hypothyroidism on the iFormRx podcast in part because, well, no new treatments have been developed in over 50 years for the treatment of hypothyroidism. Levothyroxine is the drug of choice and it works. Yes, there are a few people who still cling to thyroid extract, USP, and perhaps some people really do feel better when they get a little triiodothyronine or T3 along with their thyroxine or T4. But for the most part, the treatment of hypothyroidism is very straightforward. But while levothyroxine is the standard of care recommended by nearly every guideline and professional association, Many experts recommend sticking to a consistent levothyroxine replacement product and recommend against product substitutions. Indeed, many physicians and patients insist that branded levothyroxine products are superior to generic products. And this controversy goes back to the 1980s and 90s when Flint Pharmaceuticals, who was the makers of Synthroid at that time. But. It was later acquired by Boots Pharmaceuticals, waged a marketing campaign against product substitution, and then suppressed data about the bioequivalence of their product when compared to other branded and generic products. Eventually, the study by Betty Dong and her colleagues at UCSF was published in JAMA, in 1997, but there continues to be lingering doubts about the appropriateness of substituting levothyroxine products with some evidence to support both sides of the argument. So nearly 30 years later, it's still not clear whether or not patients can safely switch between levothyroxine products. So that's why I'm hopeful that a recent study published in JAMA Internal Medicine might finally put to rest some of this controversy. And joining us today to talk about the study are Dr. Connie Liang and Dr. Kathleen Pincus from the University of Maryland. In addition to being a member of the IFOMREX editorial board, Dr. Pincus is on the faculty at the School of Pharmacy and practices at the University of Maryland Family and Community Medicine Clinic and she's also the residency program director for the PGY2 ambulatory care residency which Dr. Liang is completing this year. So Connie, it's great to have you as a first-time contributor to iFormRx and Katie, it's great to have you back. Welcome.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast today and I'm very excited to be here.
2: Hi, it's great to be back on the iFormRx podcast. Thanks for inviting us.
0: So Connie, I'd like to start with you before we talk about the study that the two of you reviewed in your commentary. As I mentioned in the introductory comments, levothyroxine product substitution still remains a bit controversial. And I'm wondering if you can give us a brief history lesson and highlight some of the evidence that supports substitution and some of the evidence that suggests that it's not a good idea. And and what do the current treatment guidelines recommend?
1: So oral thyroxine replacement therapies have been used to treat hypothyroidism since the early 1900s before drugs even had to be approved by the FDA. And then the 1938 Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and the 1962 Kefauver Harris Drug Amendment required manufacturers to prove both safety and efficacy before a drug can be marketed. Menlevo thyroxine products were exempt from both regulations and therefore they were grandfathered in because thyroxine replacement therapy has been used prior to 1938. And it wasn't until the late 1990s that the FDA decided that levothyroxine were new drugs and had to undergo both safety and efficacy tests before it can really be FDA approved. This was likely because of a surge of levothyroxine tablet recalls for many issues relating to sub or super potency and stability the FDA approves the switch between brand and generic levothyroxine products because they are bioequivalent, which was determined based on the area under the curve, time of maximum drug concentration, and maximum concentration of T4. That is 80 to 125% of the original drug. The American Thyroid Association Endocrine Society and American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists worked together to release a joint statement citing concerns about the indices that were used to determine bioequivalence and that the FDA failed to take into account an individual's endogenous production of thyroxine because the studies were conducted on healthy individuals who had normal thyroid functions. They believe that a true and more appropriate depiction of bioequivalence and therapeutic equivalence should be based on assessments of a patient's TSH, the T3 and T4 levels, when the drug is at steady state, which is around at least four to six weeks after starting levothyroxine therapy. So this leads us to the 2014 American Thyroid Association guideline for the treatment of hypothyroidism and their recommendation against switching between levothyroxine products because of these concerns for variations in therapeutic effectiveness. And if a patient switches to a different levothyroxine product, It is recommended to check the TSH levels when the drug is at steady state after the switch occurred. In 1997, Dr. Dong and colleagues conducted a single-blind, randomized, four-way crossover study to evaluate the bioequivalence of two brand and two generic levodiroxine products. The parameters that they looked at included area under the curve, time to peak serum concentration, and peak serum concentrations of TSH, T3, and free T4, none of which yielded a statistically significant difference between the formulations. However, it is important to note that the sample size of the study was small, which included only 22 patients, all of whom were women. Now, in the recent years, a few retrospective analyses were conducted. In 2019, Hennessy and colleagues compared clinical outcomes of patients who switched from synthroid to another form of levothyroxine and found that the cohort of patients who switched had a higher risk of adverse clinical outcomes, which included diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, depression, hypertension, and obesity two years after switching compared to the one-to-one propensity match cohort of patients who remained on brand Synthroid. In 2020, Brito and colleagues compared the efficacy of generic and brand name levothyroxine in patients who were newly initiated on levothyroxine for mild hypothyroidism and found that there was no difference in proportion of patients with abnormal TSH at baseline who achieve normal TSH levels within three months. So as you can see here, the different studies have conflicting results, and it is still unclear whether different levothyroxine products, whether brand or generic, are therapeutically equivalent to each other, and many providers are definitely more comfortable with dispensing brand name Synthroid. Another problem is that oftentimes The switch between products occur unnoticed in the outpatient pharmacy. And so the question becomes, does this increase the patient's risk of safety events due to dysregulation in thyroid hormone levels? So, Katie,
0: let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. The study was published in late February 2022 in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it is entitled Association Between Generic to Generic Levothyroxine Switching and Thyrotropin Levels Among U.S. Adults. Of course, we provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website, as we always do, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and its results.
2: So this study used administrative claims from Optum Labs Data Warehouse, which is a large database that includes information on both commercially insured and Medicare Advantage enrollees. And they looked at that data for 10 years. They included adult patients who filled at least one prescription for one of the three most common manufacturers of generic levothyroxine at the time. So that included Mylan, Sandos, and Lynette. And this could be a new prescription or a refill of a prescription. So it didn't matter how long the patients had been managed on levothyroxine. Participants had to have data available for six months prior to this index fill and at least one year after the index fill to be included in this study. And they had to use the same dose in the same manufacturer for three months before the index fill and have at least one TSH level in that time frame that was within the normal range. They also had to be adherent, and they defined that as 80% proportion of days covered to the same dose and same manufacturer until the first TSH that was obtained at least six weeks, so six weeks to one year after that index fill. Patients were excluded if they were pregnant, if they had hyperthyroidism or hypopituitary disease, if they had a medical condition or used medications that could affect TSH levels, and these are listed in the article supplement if anyone's interested in seeing the specifics. They also couldn't be using other forms of thyroid replacement therapy, so things like T3 products, Armour Thyroid, or NatureThroid. The study used propensity score matching to minimize confounders. So initially, they identified over 15,000 patients who met enrollment criteria, and they matched them based on demographics, comorbidities, and baseline TSH. After the matching, there were about 5,600 patients that were included in the study, so a little more than a third of the initial population that was identified. And 2,800 of those were in each group, so 2,800 per group. There were no significant differences between the switcher and the non-switcher groups. And that might be my favorite part of the study is that the groups were labeled switcher and non-switcher, which is fun to say. There was also consistency between the matched and the unmatched cohort. So they did look back and make sure that the matching didn't exclude any big proportions of their population. The matched cohort had an average age of 59 years with 73% women, 72% were white. Over 60% had commercial insurance, and the average baseline TSH was 2.2 milli-international units per liter, and more than half of the patients took less than 50 micrograms of levothyroxine daily. The primary outcome of the study was the first TSH measured either after the switch or after the index date noted for non-switchers. And this had to be somewhere between six weeks and one year after that index date. On average, these were performed about five months, 160 days after the index date. These were classified as normal, abnormal or markedly abnormal, and abnormal could be either too high or too low. For this primary analysis, they found that 83% of non-switchers and 85% of switchers had a normal TSH at that first TSH check, and that was no statistical difference between the groups. There were two pre-specified sensitivity analyses that were performed. The first was for those with TSH results that were 6 to 12 weeks after the index date, so kind of thinking if we're giving them a whole year to f- check that first TSH after this time frame, does that change our results any? And they found that this really did not change the estimate significantly at all. They were very, very similar findings. The second sensitivity analysis was for those individuals with low or no endogenous thyroid function. And there are pretty low rates of inclusion of this population in this study, I'll also note. Overall, there were lower rates of normal TSH levels on follow-up for this group of patients with low endogenous thyroid function, but there was still no statistical difference between the groups. So it was 70 to 77% of these patients that had a normal TSH at that first check post-index date. And so the authors concluded that there was no detrimental effects in switching compared to non-switching for the patients included in this study. Well, Connie,
0: the the authors call this a comparative effectiveness study, but it's not a randomized controlled clinical trial. It's actually, it's an observational cohort study. So it's prone to potential confounders. Of course, it's not economically feasible, to conduct a huge randomized controlled trial to answer this important clinical question about bioequivalence of various levothyroxine products. So what, in your mind, what do you feel are the strengths and weaknesses of this study?
1: With retrospective observational cohort studies, what we often worry about is the impact of confounding variables on the results. So the study was well-designed with different methods to minimize those confounding variables, including the use of one-to-one propensity score matching, sensitivity analysis, and regression analysis. Another strength of the study was that the baseline characteristics were very similar between both the switcher and non-switcher cohorts and the results from the matched and a match analysis were also very similar as well. So this is allows us to be more confident that the results from the study are related to the intervention instead of from the confounding variables. There are some weaknesses or limitations that we identified with the study. We found some parts of the exclusion criteria to be unclear. So, for example, patients with hyperthyroidism were excluded, but it was never specified if this included patients who currently have hyperthyroidism or if they had a diagnosis of hyperthyroidism in the past. Um, And adherence was assessed by utilizing the dispensing data to calculate the proportion of days that levothyroxine was covered, which was really important to assess because, as we all know, levothyroxine has a narrow therapeutic index. Although this is helpful, we are unable to truly determine whether patients were actually taking the medications daily just from looking at this dispensing data. The study also excluded patients who were taking medications like amiodarone and tyrosine kinase inhibitors that can affect TSH levels. However, they did not exclude patients who were taking common products like antacids or iron supplements, which can really impair the absorption of levothyroxine. Another limitation of the study is that only three generic manufacturers were included in the study, which included Sandoz, Mylan, and Lynette. We searched the orange book and found that Sandoz and Lynette no longer manufacture generic levothyroxine products, which means that two of the three manufacturers that were included in the study are no longer used. So this calls into question whether the results from the study can be applied to other manufacturers that were not included in the study.
0: Katie, what's the bottom line? Does this study put to rest any lingering concerns about levothyroxine product substitution? Should physicians write brand only, no substitution permitted on their prescriptions? Or conversely, if substitution is permitted, does this study provide reassurance to pharmacists that product substitution is perfectly acceptable? And finally, should insurers continue to pay for branded products?
2: First, I just want to say I'm happy that studies continue to be conducted on this because this is a question I get all the time, both in clinical practice and just in my life. I've had this question come up from friends, family members, prescribers, both for patients and for themselves. So I think this is really a clinical question that is still very relevant and that you know doesn't have a settled answer. I find the results of the study reassuring that many patients will have no detrimental effects after switching among generic levothyroxine products. I think this should put both patients and providers at ease if and when generic substitution is utilized. However, I think that there were many groups of patients that were not included in this study. That, along with the conflicting results from the 2019 study by Hennessy and colleagues that did find out potential adverse outcomes in patients who switch from brand-name Synthroid to generic levothyroxine products, means that I think the jury might still be out in some cases. Specifically for me, if a patient's pregnant, elderly, is not making endogenous thyroid hormone, or has had difficulty in maintaining in-range TSH levels in the past, I would still be hesitant to switch products too frequently. And the tricky part, which Connie mentioned earlier, is that when a generic is prescribed, the provider, and oftentimes the patient, might not know when a switch occurs, and we might not be able to limit how frequently products are switched. Connie also mentioned that of the three generics that were utilized in this study and only one still remaining, and there's been some discussion that that these three generics had similar excipients where other generic manufacturers might use different ones. So it really might not be generalizable to all generic manufacturers. You know, while each generic can be considered bioequivalent to the reference product, there still might be greater variation when you start switching among generic manufacturers. So, in some cases where you're particularly worried about a patient going out of range or where there's factors that might make it harder for the TSH to remain normalized, potentially continuing to prescribe brand only would be prudent in those cases. Well, Katie... Connie, it was great
0: to have you here on the X podcast today. And I'm not sure we've laid to rest the controversy that's lingered on for as long as I've been in practice, but I I do hope our discussion today sheds some light on the pros and cons of levothyroxine product substitution and provides some reassurance to those who either elect to use a generic product or maybe forced to use a generic product by their insurer. These differences among these products appear to be small, and most patients are unlikely to require dose adjustments. Well, tell us what you think. Be sure to log in to our website at iformrx.org and post a comment. Remember, only iformrx members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. And if you'd like to become a member of iformrx, it's really easy. You can sign up. It's free to help professionals. Want to earn recertification credit for listening to this podcast and reading the commentary posted on our website? Well, if you are a board certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can. This podcast and commentary will be part of the American Pharmacists Association's evidence based practice and literature evaluation series. The program is available online, on demand, anywhere, anytime through APHA. Just click on the link posted below the written commentary, which is posted on our website to learn more. And lastly, a big shout out to Catherine Montag Schaefer, a clinical pharmacist who's on faculty with the University of Minnesota Medical School, Department of Family Medicine and Community Health. Catherine reached out to me some years ago asking about how she could get more involved with iFormRx, and over the years, she's written Several commentaries, reviewed commentaries, recruited new members, and most recently joined our editorial team. So, thank you, Catherine. It's been great to work with you over the years, and I look forward to more great things to come. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off.